Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30-plus years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion, and welcome to the Evolving Advisor podcast. I'm very excited to have a great, great guest and a very good friend joining us today. His name is Ray Sclafani, and Ray is the founder and CEO of ClientWise, the premier coaching and training organization known throughout the wealth management industry. Prior to his leadership role at ClientWise, Ray spent 20 years at Alliance Bernstein in a number of roles, one perhaps most interesting relative to what he's doing today was his role acting as a founder and managing director of the Advisor Institute at Alliance Bernstein. He's a professional certified coach, as are all the members of his team, and I think he's built really a terrific and an iconic brand in our space, recognized for his thought leadership and the best practices that he helps advisors incorporate. What his bio doesn't say is he's also the author of a best-selling book, You've Been Framed. I'm going to ask him a question about the book a little bit later on. And also a quick update, his bio states Bedford, New York, but I know that he's sort of bi-state with a presence in New York, and I believe his family is also operating out of Texas now, Dallas, Texas. So with that, Ray, welcome. We're thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks, Jeff. Thrilled to be here with you as well. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to see you present and kind of listen to some of the concepts and, and read the book. Before we get into the evolution in our space, why don't you talk a little bit about your personal evolution, kind of where you started in the industry and what led to the formation of what you're doing today at ClientWise? <laughs> That's a good question. So I began at Alliance Capital as a young intern in the mailroom working for Willie May, learning how to deliver mail around the operation, literally, and work my way up through the organization, learning lots about the mutual fund industry and the asset management industry. And that was back in 1986 and 87 did a short stint as a runner on the floor of the exchange. And, you know, frankly, really loved working most with advisors and Alliance recognized as a young professional, I'd make a good field wholesaler and spent really the first half of my career there. And then the second half of my career in leadership at Alliance Capital, which then became Alliance Bernstein and was part of the transition team and the executive leadership team that helped acquire Bernstein. I was running national sales at the time for the independent planner, RIA, insurance and bank channels and uh, saw an opportunity to really make a difference for our advisor clients who are all focused on growth. And when we acquired Bernstein, I observed what an amazing group of advisors in their client acquisition prowess and spent some time traveling with those advisors, learning what those best in their firm were doing to raise in excess of 50 to 100 million or more in net new assets annually and uh, essentially built an entire team called the Advisor Institute, which still stands today. And they're still using the same content we wrote back in the day, 2003, four, and five, and uh, really helped advisors grow their businesses. And they've done a good job at carrying that work forward. My vision after 20 years at Alliance Capital, Alliance Bernstein, was to think about ways that the industry that had been so good to me, how do I give back in a way that would be helpful for others and still do good as, as, a, as an entrepreneur? Knowing that all this M&A activity was happening, I built a 10-year plan and a big thanks to Moss Adams and Mark Tabersian and his team at that time helped me write a strategic plan for 
what the client-wise company could do in the marketplace in helping close the gaps on advisors who are sole practitioners and loan rangers, but really serious about scaling their enterprises and growing their businesses multi-generationally, what, what could we do as a firm to do that? And it became really clear to me, part of Mark's idea was to really think about building an organization that actually had enterprise value and the measure of that success being your clients wanted to continue to work with you, you were growing a profitable firm with some recurring revenues, and oh, by the way, an investor would want to invest in that company. And so a year and a half, almost two years ago now, we partnered with the private equity group as the general account at Northwestern Mutual. So we continue to serve advisors across the industry in the United States, mostly independent and RIAs, but we also have clients in Australia and Canada. And it's exciting work coaching and consulting the best in the business to scale and grow businesses profitably that create great value for others, as well as a great economic enterprise value for themselves and their teams. So that's a mouthful of evolution from the mailroom to leadership at Alliance, Alliance Bernstein, to forming your own entrepreneurial venture, and then sort of monetizing that in part and partnering with a, an organization that will hopefully help you continue to evolve and grow your business. That's, that's a whole episode, let alone an introduction. That's exciting. Yeah. Learned exciting. a lot along the way and uh, happy to still be a, a big shareholder in the client-wise company. No, that's very exciting. So I think you've got a, a probably an unusual and a very interesting perspective. As you talked about the folks, uh, much of our industry, by the way, 73% is the number of advisors or advisory firms that have no exit strategy. When you talk about that more boutique lifestyle practice, 50 million in assets or less, 87% of them do not have a written or executed right. agreement, That's which is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. So dif differentiate in your eyes all these great advisors and teams that you coach. What are some of the distinct changes that they make? The term I like to use is the evolution from an advisor to a CEO, giving advice versus actually running a business. How do you see that shift through some of your coaching and practice management lens change where advisors start to think more like business owners? Well, I think there are two triggers. I call it the heartstrings and the purse strings. You've got to pull both. If you care deeply about the client, as I know most advisors do, then it's about the heartstrings. What will happen to the client, God forbid, through disability or death, or heck, just a desire to retire and spend more time, long walks on the beach with your spouse or significant other, kids, family, grandkids? Well, you got to think about your clients multi-generationally and who's going to care for them. And if you're not, you're just renting those relationships and living what I call in chapter four in my book, The Big Fat Lie. Founder-focused firms are failures if they fail to plan beyond self. To me, that's really simple. The best in the business recognize that doing something about that there are effectively three options. You either go on and do nothing, you partner with somebody else because you're out of time or don't possess the skill or will to want to scale and grow team, or you do build and grow scale the team. And I think we probably work more with you know the second and third option advisors than those lifestyle practices that don't want to do anything about it. But what's interesting is I said two things, the heartstrings and the purse strings. Jeff, if, they, if, if we tug on the heartstrings, like, yeah, you do care about clients, so do something about it. You know, you claim you're a great planner. Well, plan for your own business exit as well. But when you do, the second thing that happens is the purse strings, the enterprise value, these businesses that are scaling and growing profitably, 
actually do drive enterprise value. When you create a great business that's sharp and value creation for client and value creation for team and build that team multi-generationally, you actually build great internal buyers of businesses they know well and a legacy that can carry on beyond that founder-focused firm. So uh, big opportunities, I think, when you talk heartstrings and purse strings. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So again, I think continuing on with that theme, of folks who are operating a business. It's some of the stuff that you've talked about. It's some multi-generational talent. It's investing, right, versus harvesting. In the lifestyle practice, I'm carving out the max income that I can take. But with that business owner mentality, I'm probably not only investing in people, but I'm probably investing in technology and platforms and resources. So as you look at some of the best practitioners, think about some of the five or 10 or 15 best teams that you've coached over time, how are they sort of uniquely expressing that energy and reinvesting into building something sustainable? What does it look like with those best execution models? Yeah, the, the, the best execution models, maybe I'll just boil it down. It's all about human capital. In the interviews I did for my book, we interviewed well over 1,200 top-ranked advisors. And one of them, an advisor down in Houston said to me, Ray, we're actually not in the wealth, wealth advising business. We're in the human capital business that delivers value in the wealth advising space. And, and I, that really stuck home for me because that human capital, it's all about the retention, the acquisition of top talent and developing leaders. You know, in the early stages of development in financial services, most advisors acquire business development, rainmaking, sales type skills. They get into the business and succeed because they have great, strong relational skills. But if they want to scale and grow an enterprise, they start honing their leadership skills. And that requires setting strategy, thinking about a clear vision, thinking about co-creation of that vision and building interdependent teams. So I think human capital definitely is at the top of the list, Jeff. And that makes sense to me. So stated another way, if we think about human capital as the foundational floor, right? Without that, it's going to be hard to build something sustainable and something successful. If you have that foundation of human capital and talent, how do you start to scale that up? Talk a little bit about your view of efficiencies, whether that incorporates process or technology. If you've got the right people on the bus, how do you deploy them and how do you create the most efficient practices along that, you know, the best model people might be seeking to build? Well, this, this might be maybe an odd answer, but, but I always go back to the financial modeling of the businesses, the best businesses. And you, know, you look three, four, five years out and, and you do some financial modeling. You know, what's the CAGR of the business, the rolling three-year CAGR? That compounded annual growth rate really is evidence of exactly what that business is built to, to produce in terms of profits. And when you think about scaling something and really forecasting that, those financials and, and think about growing the business, because the best businesses that are growing generally provide uh, higher multiples and also advisors that seem to be growing, my observation is they're, they're intensely focused on value creation for clients. And so when you do that financial modeling and forecast what that looks like, then you start backing into sort of the best solutions on on delivery of value creation. And, you know, for some advisors, it's uh, leveraging better technology. You know, the, the old days of, hey, got to have a quarterly client review and a monthly phone call and two special events a year. I mean, most, most clients today are on their, you know, iPhones 
or Android, and they're interacting episodically with their advisors. And so that value creation has to be much more nimble. And clients want to interact with their plan you know, throughout the day, on weekends. And so advisors have to continue to think about top talent but also top technology delivery of that value creation and of that advice and service. And so that to me uh, is sort of that intersection of finding, you know, next generation talent, the best in the business, you know, just pull out a Barron's top ranking list and go through websites. You start seeing a diversity of age, a diversity of gender, a diversity of race. And so those top teams uh, really are thinking about attracting and retaining top talent, building plans to scale that firm, and actually have strategic hiring plans along the way. So they actually know who they're hiring and when, and how they're integrating that technology in a way that clients can actually receive the value that they're paying for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if I'm running a large practice, and I'm trying to do all the things that you're talking about, human capital and scalability and process and all these different things. I think I know the client-wise model well, but tell me, as, a, as a, the head of a top team, how would I be looking at client-wise as a provider of solutions to help guide me to these right outcomes for my firm? What's the best type of offering you guys would be presenting today along those lines? I think one of the things we've done, recognizing the need for some of this, uh, is the need for our Business Builders Academy, where advisors come together in a regular cadence every 90 days, you know, groups of high performers that are committed to scaling and growing and building multi-generational enduring firms actually interact with each other, follow a curriculum and content with a professional facilitator and uh, really do the work, bringing their teams or team members, executive leadership teams where they interact with each other. The learning platform that's most common is a learning platform where 70% of learning is based upon experience, 20% of learning is actually by from peers, and 10% uh, from curriculum. And so we create learning platforms and structures where advisors take that experience that they've had, learn from one another with a professional facilitator and curriculum, starting with a gap analysis, so the right advisor is in the right group, where they can really scale and grow. Uh, and that tends to be really effective. Complemented with private coaching that's bespoke seems to be a magic solution that is uh, work for our clients. And I know, and obviously you know, that some of our top advisors have uh, leveraged your services. And I would say consistently, I don't think there's been a single conversation I've had where they haven't been thrilled with the guidance and the insight and frankly, some of the introspection. So rather than giving answers, it seems like a lot of times you're driving them to explore the questions that they haven't thought about because they may be so mired in the day-to-day. It's that notion that we all know about, you know, on the business versus time in the business. And frankly, some of our best practitioners spend so much time in the business, they're really not thinking about all these questions that, you know, should be contemplated. Yeah. Well, when you're running a bigger business, uh, the answers lie uh, in knowing what questions to ask. You know, what are the crucial conversations that our leadership team needs to be having? What are the, the greater threats to our firm, uh, where are our internal strengths and weaknesses? But more importantly, it's not just a SWAT, it's really, you know, what are you doing about that information and, and how are you executing? So much thinking is good, but acting and action and reflection of the action and adjustments is uh, really what it's all about. Yeah, so we've talked about these 
steps that advisors should take or consider in terms of trying to evolve or grow their business. Can you reflect at all on maybe some of the consistencies of mistakes made? Where, where do advisors go awry or where do the, some of these teams not reach their full potential? What are the common mistakes that you see made most often that we should be aware of, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, it, it's funny. Uh, uh, Mark Twain was responsible for uh, the creation of and distribution of Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, which ended up being a tremendous success. And the way he did it was he, he armed 10,000 former veterans to go door-to-door selling books. And his sales manual was, do these things to ensure your failure. And I, I, I always get a kick out of that question because it's right on. If you want to really fail, do this. Uh, I, I, I think there are a few things. One, you know, fail to plan. I'm amazed how many advisors are, are amazing planners for clients, but when it comes to the planning of their own business, they, they simply miss it. Or they write a plan and look at it once a year, and uh, you know that doesn't ever really work out very well. So I would say failing to plan number one. Number two would be this focus on profitability. You know, growth not just for growth's sake, but really thinking about the quality of the growth of the firm, and creating structures where they've institutionalized that business development activity, and they've institutionalized. Uh, the client advising activity, and they've institutionalized a brand. You know, those businesses are incredibly valuable. So I think the big, the big failure is that lack of attention to the financials and, and of course, the strategy. Th- those stand out for me. One other quick thing, and uh, I, I delivered a presentation at the Investment Wealth Institute to a group of about 700 uh, professionals around human capital. And, and it really lit a fire. I thought that was pretty, pretty helpful for the, for the group. The feedback I got was pretty tremendous. And that is, you know, thinking of human capital as an asset and not a liability. I mean, it shows up on your balance sheet in a particular way as, as a direct expense, you know, professional staff expense and operating expense for those service advisors and associate wealth advisors. But the truth of the matter is the greatest asset on your balance sheet are your people. And uh, really treating those people with great respect, uh, having each professional a career path and plan, not only in the today company, but in the future company, you know, with written job responsibilities and knowing what meets and exceeds and far exceeds expectation for each role, you know, and then compensating accordingly. Like you got to really care for those humans on the team. After all, they're interacting with the client every day. Yeah, that makes great sense. So just kind of switching gears slightly. Sure. If rather than coaching these teams, you're actually running one of these teams, where do you see opportunities? Not so much on you know, where the industry sits today, but some of the changes, whether it be through demographics, through technology or otherwise, if you were running a practice like that, what might be some of the key decisions you'd be making today about what you want the business to look like and who you'd like to serve and how you'd like to serve them oh my over the next five to 10 years? Wow, what a big question. Um, that's interesting. So for me, the amount of wealth transfer that will occur among closely held businesses in the United States is extraordinary. And our business, our country, you know, America is really built upon this entrepreneur and the risk that one takes in starting a business and growing franchise value. And those people need help. 
And I think there's a deep connectivity between what advisors are doing as entrepreneurs in running a business and scaling a business. And they've got a front row seat to what it takes to do that successfully and can provide tremendous value to clients who own businesses and are thinking about what retirement looks like and you know what the legacy of that business looks like. So in, in my mind, one of the big opportunities is, is this small business owner. I think that in terms of value creation, to me, if we look at what financial planning is all about, which is you know estate and tax and investments and risk and really the totality of what an advisor can do for clients, you know the banks are getting more competitive in the marketplace. You look at what Morgan Stanley or Merrill, uh, even UBS is doing. Uh, we know Wells Fargo is doing it well in the integration of banking products. You know those hooks into the client can be detrimental to the uh, entrepreneur advisor that's focused on planning. So the more one can integrate services, whether it's risk and investments, bolting in some tax and estate, and really providing value to those small business owners, that jumps out for me as something that I'd probably be paying it more attention to. And, and then I, I, I think if I was running a wealth advising firm, at the top of my list would be a strategy around growth but growth in three areas. I think it's, uh, are we doing all the right zoo hunting we need to be doing? Are we doing all the right jungle hunting we need to be doing? And are we doing enough big game hunting? And let me describe what I mean. You know, the zoo hunting is all that organic growth. The opportunities uh, that exist inside a client roster when, when we jump into a firm and take a close look at growth strategies, I'm always amazed about the segmentation analysis, whether it's revenue per professional and then therefore revenue per client and the opportunity set that exists deep inside a client roster. You know, advisors will often admit they hear from clients from time to time that they've sold a business, inherited some money, they've bought some real estate, they've retired, you know, and, and they missed the opportunity. So with the right firm structure, honing in on that organic growth strategy, hunting in the zoo better is uh, top of the list. Got to have a strategy for hunting in the jungle. How are you going to acquire new relationships and new clients? And let's not forget acquisitive growth. The pace of acquisitions and mergers in our industry, record quarter after quarter for what now? Six years and two quarters in a row, uh, we're seeing uh, record growth. And I think we're in the third inning of a nine inning ball game that could go extra innings with the transition of advisors from more of a captive structure, an employee model at a wirehouse to an independent RIA entrepreneurial structure. I think there's an entrepreneurial movement taking place in our industry and these businesses are getting more valuable by the quarter. So I, I would be paying attention to acquisitive growth and big game hunting as well. Yeah, those are some great insights. So as you're talking about this jungle and game and all this other stuff, I'm actually headed to Africa in a couple of months for a third visit and you're making me think about my trip and get excited. But I like the way that you, again, to use a term from your book, frame that up, right? So We've been super active, I, much of my time and responsibilities, and then a couple key team members, Lou Camacho being one of them, have geared up in our shop to focus really almost exclusively on acquisition, 
monetization and succession planning because there's just a lot of it there. So, well, Jeff, I, I've also noticed too uh, among those top advisors at at your firm that we've coached over the years, the commitment that Stratos has in helping advisors connect with other top advisors in their communities and provide you know the right financial and consulting structures to make those deals happen has been uh, an extraordinary value. I know your firm has added to others. Yeah, so because and because we're in complete agreement with you, and there are a lot of constituents that need to be served, right? You've obviously the obvious are the selling advisor and the buying advisor, but you've got the clients that are right up there as well. You've got the staff of those organizations, and then you have the families. And we've just seen so many different situations with folks who didn't do what they needed to do. And it's you know with, with our organization at the size we're at now, we've had advisors in their forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies pass away. And it's not the planned exit that's problematic. It's the unplanned exit. And sure. it happens. Yeah, that's right? right. It does happen. Yeah. I'll tell you what's worse than the unplanned is the disability. We had a client with degenerative eye disease, you know, needing to build a team within six months. And you look up and go, man, you can't do that. And so better find somebody to bolt into. But sometimes it's the disability that gets them, not just the death. Very, very true. And then the other thing I wanted to comment on is closely held businesses. It's a great, great market segment. Number one, it's a massive market segment. It's an underserved market segment. And it's one that I think might be less subject to fee compression. Absolutely. Because there's complexity there, right? So if you understand all the issues surrounding valuation and family dynamics and tax planning and everything else, not only is there a massive amount of wealth being monetized, but there's complexity so that everyone couldn't play in that space and add value. And if you're coming into that space, once the business has been monetized, you don't have a lot of leverage. But if you're part of the discussion about monetization and about the tax planning and about the goals, you almost secure a seat at the table, whether or not you have all the funds as, as that business monetizes or a chunk of it. I like it because, again, it requires an intellectual capital to bring to the table. And I think that's a, a great segment. Jeff, can I just add something in there? One of our clients in the uh, New York tri-state area has been doing this for quite a number of years. And perhaps in the show notes, I can share with the group that's listening to this podcast, there are three companies in the United States that actually train individuals on how to consult closely held businesses. And one of our clients actually went through one of those training programs with an outfit out of Boston and became certified business exit consultants. And they've been running uh, weekend workshops for as long as I can remember. I don't know how many years these guys have been doing it, but they run weekend workshops, like Saturday morning workshops for business owners around planning, around exit, around increasing profits and value creation, and, and, and all kinds of businesses, franchise owners and you know, mom and pop shops. And you know, what's remarkable is not only have they created great value for this small group, which has turned into a really large group, but here's what else that they've done. They've partnered with business valuation specialists and business brokers and investment bankers and real estate experts. They've built a terrific network of other professional advocates and centers of influence, which has helped bring them referrals and introductions. And then they've also really built out a nice pipeline of new business. So when they're doing the individual and business financial planning with those small, closely held businesses and can kind of put people on a pathway to retirement and uh, transitioning the business, they actually have a pretty good idea quarter by quarter by quarter, which businesses are going to be sold. And they're raising an excess of $100 million in net new money a year by helping clients transition uh, their exit out of these small businesses because they've got a direct line of sight into what the 
what these business owner strategies are for exit and sale. And they're actually working with the bankers and the business valuation specialists. And oh, by the way, they pick up those individuals as clients who are buying the business. So it's like a double whammy. It's been probably the best client acquisition strategy I've seen in this space. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that actual item of the organization that does training. And apparently it sounds like there are a couple others as well for someone who's looking to create a specialization because I think the world of the general practitioner is sort of winding down. And the more that advisors can develop a specialization and stand out and create some type of, not that they can't serve a broad marketplace, but that they can go really deep with a very specific marketplace. I think that's a great part of a healthy you know, client acquisition strategy. I would agree. Absolutely. Yep. And developing their G2 professionals uh, with specialties as well, really builds something that's sustainable in terms of growth. So last question for sure. you. If, yeah. you if, if you look out over the next five years, what will happen in the evolution of client-wise and what might you be hoping for in a personal evolution in terms of things that might be of interest to you or your family that you would find fulfilling? What do the next five years look like from your evolutionary standpoint for you to feel excited and enthusiastic about? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, I am a young professional. I still work out every day. I'm young. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, but I am CEO of probably the largest coaching firm in financial services and a growing one. We've got a nice CAGR. We're continuing to grow. We're building our G. We're attracting top talent to work in the RIA space. So I, I think more of the work we're doing, we're, we're far from being close to, uh, you know, done. I, I'm excited about financial services and about the entrepreneurial movement taking place among financial advising practices in America. What's happening in Australia will create continued success for us with the disruption happening uh, there. Canada is going through the same thing with their IROC platform. So we're, we're going to continue to play in the space of helping advisors drive enterprise value and build out their teams. And I think my job is to do not too dissimilar to what uh, we encourage founders to do of advisory firms, which is leadership development and attracting talent. So we're going to continue on that space. Personally, working with ClientWise is what I call act two. My first act you know, in the play, so to speak, of my life was working corporately and succeeded there at a very high level. Moving into the entrepreneurial space is kind of my act two. Act three for me and my wife, Beth, is to really continue to focus and, and build out an extension of our philanthropic efforts. Uh, we have a crazy vision that we can build safe houses all across the United States in some of the most dangerous cities in America and create a space where young kids can come and feel safe and learn and feel supported and bring bright minds into those spaces to mentor and coach and develop. Uh, I, I keep meeting top advisors around the country who have a plethora of clients who are former CEOs and business owners and teachers who have some time on their hands, who want to help their communities and, and help mentor the youth of America. And I think the more time I spend working with Boys and Girls Club and I'm a merit badge counselor with the Boy Scouts. You know, more I see the youth of America, I get more encouraged about the future. You know, they're so nimble on technology and they're way smarter, I think, than we were, you know, in, in when I was in my teens. I, I just get very excited about making a difference in the lives of children. And these safe houses may be a, a pie in the sky idea, but it's something I'll do in the future. Yeah, I think that's tremendously exciting on both the professional and the personal front. 
but perhaps neither of those are quite as exciting as the way that we end the Evolving Advisor podcast, which is with podcast karaoke. Yeah, here we go. Uh, So you have chosen Castaway by the (laughs) Zach Brown Band. Yeah, listen, Jeff, I wouldn't do this for anybody but you, only because I love you dearly. But I'm the guy at church on Sunday where they all turn around and go, man, why are you singing? So this is this is going to be pretty karaoke, I think. That that may be the case, but I can also tell you that some folks who I will not name individually have told me that music fills your heart and soul and that I should be buckled into my seat when this song comes out. <laughs> so without further ado, You're we'll let you we'll let you tee up your music and we're okay. excited to hear you, buddy. Okay. All right. Well, karaoke. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you today, Jeff. I appreciate it. And uh Thank let me you, see if I do this right. You sent me this ridiculous karaoke microphone that yes. I Bluetoothed up to my phone. So I'm hoping this uh, this works out all right. Okay, let's see. Here we go. Pour me another one. Make it a strong one. We're going to have some fun tonight. I want to be a castaway and leave the world behind. Take a tropic holiday, say goodbye to keep in time, wasting away down by the coast, Pacific Co and chasing lime, easy living down in paradise. Pour me another one, make it a strong one, we're gonna have some fun tonight. Just like the other one, make it a double rum, we're gonna cast away tonight. All right, there you have it, guys. Perfect, buddy. Hey, you can't see me, but I actually had my phone in my hand waving it back and forth like they do at the concerts. Oh, you're so funny. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.